Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy. And today on our show, we've got an, another amazing guest. He is a former major in the Marine Corps, an advocate for psychedelics, and is a high-level international business consultant for GPS Business Group, a company he founded and is managing director with. Welcome to the show, Chris Steely. How's the day going for you so far? David Hardy, always a pleasure, sir. My day as well, and yours? Oh, fantastic. So it is 8 a.m. where you are in California. Uh, have you already optimized your day? So, all right. So it's great. Starting off out of the blocks with a tactical question around the day. So eight o'clock, woke up 4.45, uh, just kind of compelled to do. So the alarm was set for five, but I just kind of bounced out of bed and immediately started kicking into the the flow of thought and consciousness around all the stuff I've got to do, right? And uh, coming into this space, it's dark, you know, so waking up, taking care of kind of the priorities, you know, and then, uh, you know, focusing on business and running business. But frankly, it started off with setting a foundation for the day uh, with kind of a, a deliberate countenance of a, I, I like to deliberately put myself into a mind frame and a heart set of focus, del deliber deliberation, for lack of a better word. Um, we, you know, we have goals. I mean, we, we should all set goals. So that's how I came into the day. And then the hours ticked by and the sun came up and the obligations creeped in. And for me, my life is a function. I think many of our lives as achievers is a function of uh, consistently balancing the, the, the tundra and the, 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 initiative of the day, the momentum of the day with our ideals around keeping it focused and productive, lest we get distracted. And I, I'll tell you one thing, since you asked me the question, it's that shiny object thing. You know, it's like somebody says something, immediately I get distracted and I get to be aware of that. So that's where I am now at eight o'clock in the morning, Pacific time on this day, this one and only day that we'll never have, making the most of it, talking to you and also looking forward to what the rest of the day holds and eventually going back to sleep and being grateful. So anyway, nice. good question. <laughs> we can go deeper with that too, if you like. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I love it. And the reason I started with that is uh, you coach a lot of high performers. Um, you've been uh, on tour with Tony Robbins. Um, you've written books with, uh, oh, so many, uh, Dr. John Gray, uh, Stevie Covey, uh, just kind of walk us through kind of your career up to this point and uh, kind of the things you're doing right now with high level uh, businesses and corporations to, to get them firing and optimize. So my life, um, again, I appreciate the reflection on it. It's funny, we really don't necessarily think about our, our lives unless somebody kind of puts it in front of us. Then all of a sudden, you're giving me a perspective in my mind's eye around who I am and why I am and what I've done. And it's my life has been kind of a like a journey of purpose, right? Okay. Starting off at a young age in northern Indiana and being raised in the cornfields and being raised by a couple parents that did the best they could, you yeah. know. But again, raised in a family of, of of dysfunction, whatever that looks like, you know, and just coming to terms with that and realizing there's there was trauma early on in my life, and we all have trauma and it's unique to all of us, right? 
Right. And again, that's my unique story. And you got me visualizing it in my mind's eye. It's like, wow, what a journey that was. And I think one of the pivotal moments that kind of forced me down the path I'm on now was um, when I was 14 years old and my family was basically literally falling apart. My father checked me into Alateen, which is part of the AA process. Okay. Uh, so Alcoholics Anonymous and learned the 12 steps and everything. And I didn't have the addiction, but I was exposed to a family paradigm that was oriented around addiction and dysfunction. Right. And that hmm. got me into the dy- dynamic of psychology and th- psychotherapy and group work and taking myself on right at 14 years old. Wow. And then from there, it was, um, it was a journey of, of achievement, uh, chose to go to a military boarding school for high school and learn leadership, uh, ended up going to college, uh, excelled in peer leadership and, um, got a a degree and then engaged in the context of that degree and applied myself with that whole dynamic, the whole time of consciousness, right? Like psychological and spiritual awareness as I was going through the pipeline and the timeline of life, right? And excelled athletically, won a national championship. And that was a a mindset shift as well when you get to that pinnacle of performance in the sport of rowing. And then I turned around and, and, and coached that and realized that I had an essence and a spirit of coaching, you know, which is all about listening and giving back and caring. And you know? so, so anyway, that's kind of who I am and what I've become. And then I apply that into business. And uh, again, it's just an amazing journey of corporate employment and eventually having that fall apart for whatever reason, uh, because I got, I, I say that I got bitten by the, by the, by the purpose purpose bug. So basically understood what my purpose is on the planet during this brief hundred year span that I'm here to live and started focusing on that and really getting kind of retooling uh, and understanding the dynamics of, of psychology as as it applies to business, you know, being a, uh, uh, a Marine, I, I, I joined the Marine Corps when the war started, right. It became a logistics officer, which is the ultimate leadership experience, frankly, leading, leading humans, uh, to ultimately potentially give the supreme sacrifice, right? And have them wanting to do right. that willingly and understanding psychology in the process and that we've all got trauma and dysfunction in our in our origins to some extent. And we all get to come to terms with that. So that's kind of been who I am and why I am. Again, extreme leadership and then working with companies in an organizational de- development capacity to help them confront the reality of their cultures and their teams and how they think and how they work together and how they can work together even more effectively. Again, whether it be with you know Tony Robbins and all the dynamics of neuro-linguistic programming, which I, I'm a practitioner in, uh, or understanding the esoterics and the dynamics of medicine, plant medicines, to really unlock the potential of a human mind, my human mind specifically, and being an exemplar in that context and kind of guiding people to methodologies that I know that work. So Right. Wow. Yeah. That is a huge amount of experience, and uh, you've been uh, kind of uh, the, the terms being thrown out there that you're an unconventional facilitator, uh, doing it differently, inspiring power, passion, and possibilities. Uh, can you kind of touch on how the military experience, which I would see as being very regimented and very structured, uh, compared to being out? in the business world, um, more so kind of an entrepreneurship where it's chaos and, uh, and more trying to create something than trying to break something down into different pieces. 
can you kind of walk us through maybe the different aspects of, of both of those then and how are they interconnected? So when I think of convention, right, convention is basically it's the way things have already always been done. It's like the status quo, right? Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's initiatives, activities, thought processes that are uh, based on what's generally done or believed, right? And that's normal. That's where we all kind of operate from, right? Absolutely. Uh, unconvention is not based on or conforming to what is generally done or believed. Simple shift in those two dichotomies, right? So when I think about, you call my, people call me unconventional. I, I always think of the application of um, convention in warfare, right? Unconventional warfare, right? We talk about the Marine Corps, right? In the military, right? So warfare as a metaphor to apply this to, it's, it's unconventional warfare is military operations other than conventional warfare that may use covert forces, subversion, guerrilla warfare, things like that. So differently, doing things differently, right? And I learned earlier in my life that to be significant, and to be truly innovative, you have to be different, right? So we could we could choose to stay conventional and stay comfortable and maintain that status quo, or, and I believe it's not necessarily an option, it's frankly an imperative, if we're truly going to innovate and do things differently, we have to defy that convention and go out on those, uh, I call them the thin, skinny branches, right? Where the risk is, you know, where the possibilities lie. and and again, whether it be, again, forgive me for bringing the metaphor of like war and in violence and everything. It's about achieving the mission with competencies that are not normal, right? So how do we as leaders determine what that looks like for us, right? So that's what I love to do is defy that convention. I always, I've been known to say that life begins at the end of your comfort zone. Ooh, what does that look like? What does that mean? Right. You know, I've, I've been known, uh, to, I've, I've, I've been called a threat to mediocrity. That's one of the reputations I've got. Right. And um, I always tell people I'm, I'm not in it for your comfort. Right. And I'm in it for your success. And it's been fostered again through a lifetime of achievement, athletically, militarily, otherwise. And it's important that we consciously shift to a mindset of, other than what is so that we can actually innovate and, and go unconventional, if you want to call it that. So I don't know if that answers the question. We can go deeper if you want to. I do want to go deeper on that uh, and mainly kind of tying in a few things you've already said. And that is that uh, conventional is also kind of safe and psychologically safe, that it's something that we're used to and, and that the patterns are already there for the brain to kind of fit and match it up. Whereas the unconventional is very stressful. It's chaotic. It's something that we're not ready to quite accept yet without kind of thinking through it. And of course, there's always timelines on things. There's always more pressure. Uh, so how does that kind of integrate into... Uh, the individual and how you would walk them through kind of how to manage the unconventional and deal with the stress personally. So we all, we live in a world these days, David, of, um, we call it, you know, FUD in the military, right. fear, <laughs> uncertainty, and doubt, right? Yes. So in today's 
environment, global environment of that and division. I believe that effective leaders must defy convention. Are you ready to take your brain health to a brand new higher level than ever before? Then please check out thehardybrain.ca and inquire about our virtual brain health intensive programs. I believe that effective leaders must defy convention. Transitioning from more, I mean, one of the things we talk about in military is, is a command and control, right? You've got to have command and control. There has to be a, a structure and a hierarchy and a reporting structure, eventually with a commanding officer, somebody who's in command. You have to have command and you have to have control, which is communication, right? So these days, I believe that it's understanding the value of command and control and then shifting into more of a collaborative model, uh, being of support. Uh, you know, with, 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 with competence and we get to determine what skills we need to be competent in based on who we are as human beings and committing to that, to raising up our performance. So unconvention, you're right, innovation, it's scary. It's the unknown. But that's where success lies, whether it be in business or overcoming a, an adversary, right? Uh, it, it, it's in knowing the unknown which is, it's like a fog, right? So visualize a fog. What's in that fog? I don't know. And we have to have the courage to enter that fog with a level of, again, competence and commitment, predicting market conditions so that when they occur, we're ready to accommodate them and being more resilient and resourceful as opposed to commanding and controlling, right? It's a balance of the two, I think. And if, if you're just doing what everybody else does and you're not differentiating, you can't be significant. So if we fear unconventional methodologies, the daunt that accompanies this fear precludes us from effective responsiveness and resilience. And we also have to be oriented toward how the, the enemy, whatever that is, the competition, the marketplace, whatever might be restraining us or causing us to contract as leaders, might be oriented toward how the enemy that that enemy is going to respond and they're going to, they're going to respond innovatively as well so quickly adapting to the tactics and the strategies and be able to and do things differently and as a marine i've regularly been assessed as that is a again unconventional innovative leader bringing more of a coaching ethic into a relatively militant environment um I'll, I'll, Actually, I'll, I'll never uh, forget. Chris, uh, can, can you kind of dive into maybe a story or example of it? Uh, I know listening to you before, uh, you had talked about uh, the Cuba incident where Cuba had this mass exodus and you were responsible for basically directing how these refugees determined um were were handled and uh, taken care of. Uh, can you walk us through the command and control part with the human aspect of of how to support and coach and and walk people through this? So I'll actually bring the story in since you brought it up. Um, remember in 1994 when Castro and Aristide opened up the gates and they said you can leave and everybody started swimming to Miami. Right. <laughs> that happened. Right. Yes. Because and what we did is we ended up, um, it was, uh, we, we, we had, the military was called and uh, we had needed to corral these, 
these tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people who are getting eaten by sharks, frankly, and rescue them and save them, right? It was called Operation Sea Signal, and we we built repatriation camps on Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, and that was my my mission. That was a, it was in logistics, and in preparation to collect and repatriate, we were counting on fifty thousand fleeing refugees from Cuba and Haiti. We had we had to we very quickly overflowed Guantanamo Bay and we had to lease an island from the British West Indies for, from, from the, from uh, England, right. In the British West oh, Indies, wow. Grand Turk Island. And we built a repatriation camp on that Island. Um, and again, it was quite an interesting mission because we really didn't know we had to do that until we actually got boots on the ground in Guantanamo Bay and we had to expand. And it involved negotiating with negotiating with local authorities, customs authorities, government surveying, coordinating liaison, uh, dealing with government and civilian officials. And I represented the Marine Corps as the key political and social liaison uh, based on the role that I was in with the British government, all the while focusing on mission accomplishment and building a repatriation facility that could house human beings and people to feed them and clothe them and manage all the logistics around that. So Again, that was a big mission. And when big missions like that come into, into, into a business, into my paradigm or anybody's paradigm, we need to step into it with, with a plan, with confidence and competence in the plan and make sure that we're engaging the right resources to plan and manage the project. And ultimately, as you say, David, it all comes down to that human essence. The, the, we're all human resources, right? I'm a flesh and bone meat package. You know, that's been given this, the blessing of this mind, this psychology and this capability. And it's my responsibility to channel that into a role that is going to work and it's going to make a difference. And that mission in the military, that's just one example of it. Right. And it made all the difference. And back to that command and control, I came in with command and control, but I also made it a point to ask my Marines questions right in that context right. of that more of a more of a coaching style as opposed to that militant commanding style it was more okay we got to do this how do you think we should do it and it was strange because usually a militant structure is that i'm just going to tell you how to do it but because i leveraged the competencies of the people that were in my subordinate hierarchy starting with enlisted people senior enlisted people all the way down i enabled all of them to apply themselves and that made all the difference as opposed to just one leader taking responsibility for all aspects of strategy uh, and planning and deployment of tactics. So like I say, for me, it's, it's all about collaboration, right? Working together and realizing that I'm not that smart, frankly, right? I, I don't know as much as we know. And coming to terms with that ego component, not thinking that I have to be so aggrandized, right, and look good. Because it's all about me making us look good as a leader. That's what I believe true leadership is, is taking the spotlight off me and shining it on my people and my teams. And again, that's what I love to do with companies is to get them to get this. And too many people these days, I think, David, are stuck into a paradigm of convention. I mean, they're just doing the best they can to get by. And if they're, they're making right. profit and that's good enough, but they don't have functional teams in context. So... I appreciate I the question. It's always good to remember those missions. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I, I would uh, also like to uh, kind of hit on on what you just said with ego and tie it back to how we started off with basically how you start your day. Um, so 
of course, collaboration with all different people on our teams is so key, but it comes down to the individual being basically the best they can or doing the best job they can for their role in order to offer something to the team. So how do you kind of balance the integration of different team members with uh, individualized performance? So integration of individual team members with individualized performance in the context of ego. Absolutely. Uh, All right. So first of all, we all have ego, right? Can't help it. We're kind of born with it. It's one of those God-given things that frankly, many of us wish we didn't have, but frankly, without ego, we wouldn't survive, right? Right. We need to be self-sufficient, right? So with that paradigm, uh, my experience in the context of effective leadership and getting the mission accomplished is that if, if we let that ego and that desire to look good drive our psychology as we develop strategies and deploy them, all you're going to do is you're going to have an organization of human resources that are all about looking good. And it's funny, as I say that, David, you're, you and our listeners are probably imagining corporations that are out there that, you know, businesses that look good, right? Right. But what might be going on behind the scenes is more of, again, that aggrandizement. They look good, but they're not, they're not existentially good, right? And th- so that paradigm exists. And we, so the imperative now in context is to realize that we're all ego-driven creatures, right? And then have consciousness around that and realize how the ego can be insidious. It can be acidic as it eats away at components of productivity. Because if I'm just here to look good, you know, and I want to look good and make you not look good in the process because I want to look better than you, notice the implication of power struggles and power structures and paradigms of power, right? So ego aggrandizement, and power structures are the demise, frankly, of effective productive business, right? So we get to, it's funny, we get to dissolve that ego, right? realize that it's its still going to be there, but for lack of a better metaphor, harness it, right? Rein it in and, and control it. Because as I say, ego can be insidious. It can make us think we're doing things that are for a higher purpose or a higher calling, or but ultimately, unless we're conscious of it, it will take over. It'll take control. And that's my experience with the world today, these days. I mean, if you look at, and I look at our government, our leaders, right? Called, notice the air quotes around leaders, right? They call right. themselves leaders, <laughs> but they're self-serving and they're constituent based and they're all about serving themselves first. So I think that's what it comes down to, David, is I kind of distill the conclusion as you're allowing me to process my answer is that it, 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 we as leaders must be oriented toward service, service of others. And I mean, it's so, it's so cliche, but unless that happens, we, the, the burden of responsibility to do it all, do it all ourselves and eventually having our ego construct collapse because we're going to fail if we think we can do it ourselves is not going to happen. So the most effective leaders in context are the ones that are aware of how good they look, realizing that it's not about them and being humble and being vulnerable and being authentic and being the leader that people want to follow because of that heart centeredness. Right. So anyway, that's my, that's my response. <laughs> I love it. Let's dive down another layer though. So, uh, ego, trauma, uh, self-performance 
And let's toss in another thing you've been passionate about educating and and talking about or bringing awareness to, and that's psychedelics. Uh, I'm just going to let you tie all those subjects together and see where it goes. Okay, great. So um, the way this one is going to play out is, again, I described my life. I was living my life, going through the pipeline of life, uh, living like we all do, right? Doing the best we right. can and dealing with the roller coaster of life and searching for answers, right? Always raising my bar of performance. And, you know, once I hit that comfort zone and it gets uncomfortable, there's failure and I'm going to fail, right? And we're all failing. The imperative is to fail, embrace failure and fail forward and learn from that failure, right? So I was going through life doing well, you know, uh, a little bit, you know, struggle and everything. And I had a trusted advisor who mentioned in passing, we were at a conference, I was speaking on stage in Los Angeles and he came up to me afterwards. He's like, Hey, that was a really good presentation. Have you ever heard of ayahuasca? And I'm like, uh, well, I've heard of it, but I don't know anything about it. He's like, you know, and that was when the medicine called me and the way it works again, it's a medicine. Uh, in this context, it's a plant medicine. It's plants, it's all, all, all organic, all natural in the Amazon and it comes together and it creates a, a chemical dynamic in your psychology when you induce it, you, you drink it, and it stimulates uh, uh, molecules in your brain that allow you to transcend, allows me to transcend my levels of thinking. And I didn't know what that calling was all about until I I induced, and uh, it you know so again it's a it's it's a it's a it's a it's a chemical induction, call it a drug, right? It's a drug for lack of a better word, right? Right. Yes. And when you induce it, it changes your chemistry, you know, your biochemistry, your, your brain chemistry, and it uh, allows for DMT, which is, a matter, matter of fact, David, you know more about this than I do, but DMT is um, generated in the pineal gland in the middle of your head, in the middle of your brain, right? So it's a physical chemical, right? And what these this ayahuasca does is it stimulates that pineal gland and allows it allows me, allows you, allows anybody who induces it to transcend conventional levels of thinking. And I didn't know what I didn't know about so many aspects of life and my soul and my spirit and my purpose until I induced the elixir, this medicine. Again, it's a medicine. It's not a drug. We call it, but it's actually a plant-based medicine that is known as a spirit, call it a spirit. And through these journeys, and there's, you know, one of these ayahuasca journeys is like a four-hour experience, it's deep, deep, deep work. They say that a four-hour journey with grandmother ayahuasca is like 10 years of psychotherapy, and it really is. You confront traumas at ways that nobody else can, possibly can, because it's your unique trauma. So anyway, all that being said... It's those dynamics of medicine, healing medicines that allow my, my brain chemistry to shift, to be able to come to terms with aspects of my self and my spirit and my soul that I never even knew existed. And once, once you see that, you can't unsee it for the rest of your life. And I started that probably about eight years ago, and it's been a journey of leading people to the medicine because frankly, David, the medicine's the teacher. Um, there's shamans out there and, but the medicine is actually a, it, it's a beautiful organic spirit. That's actually a teacher and it teaches us. I mean, it's becoming, there's a psychological renaissance that's happening right now. I'm sorry, a psychedelic renaissance that's happening right now right. where people are realizing the value of how we can heal using these medicinal modalities. 
And there's other channels as well. But I think ayahuasca for me has probably been about the biggest, most significant medicine to help me confront that ego. Matter of fact, I, 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 I'll never forget. I, I heard, I heard about ego and I kind of knew what ego was, but I didn't truly know what ego really was until I was able to be in this transcendental state and actually experience and see my ego that was unique to me and how it was influencing me and empowering me and also holding me back in a way that was totally unique to me. So that's the thing about psychedelics is it's something that must be experienced. You can listen to story. I mean, there's been books written about it. There's, you know, gurus and shamans rather they're talking about it. And the imperative is the experience of it so that we can unlock our competency and our capability to truly be unconventional, defy that. Oh, and by the way, we talk about the controversy behind the, these substances. They're schedule one substances. The government doesn't want them to be legal. Well, no, not at all. No. Of course not, because the government wants to control people. And once you start inducing these substances, you become enlightened. And the government can't control enlightened people, right? So there's a hegemonic, there's a government hegemony that's controlling people. And the psychedelic renaissance is allowing people to break free from that with responsible, medicinal, sacred use of these medicines. And again, it's made a big difference for me to confront my ego, overcome it, come to terms with it and harness it to serve me and to serve my purpose most effectively. So thanks for the question. So with this enlightenment and as we've talked about kind of power control, um, with your military background and what you know with government and the psychedelics and this enlightenment with the, the induced uh, trip, uh, how do those kind of interplay or conflict with each other? Or what is kind of the, the steps forward a society can take then if they do want more enlightenment, yet still keep things in control uh, so things don't fall apart? All right. So I'm, I'm bringing in different nuances there. So we talk about government, military control, being responsible, being competent. Uh, being effective with courage, honor, integrity, commitment, everything that mechanism requires for a human being to perform on the front line of the battlefield, ultimately, or in a support role, which is logistics and everything I talked about before, combined with the, the essence of the human, right? And until we're all plugged into the matrix, right? And right. AI takes over, right? Human <laughs> beings are the ones doing things, whether it be military, you know, business or whatever. So it's our responsibility to, t to take that essence of competency and understand it on a, on a deep level. I'm, I'm a, you, you probably can hear David, I'm more kind of like a, people call me spiritual, right? Um, you know, there's a difference between spirit and religion. It's an essence of understanding of the fact that when you look at me, I'm a flesh and bone meat package. That's not really who I am right? You can see I've got right. eyes. What's going on behind those eyes is who and what I really am. And we, if we really want to be self-actualized and be the best humans that we can to do whatever we were put here to do, even if it's on the front line of battle, I believe it's our sacred responsibility to understand that essence. And that's what my experience with, with, with sacred plant-based spiritual medicine can make the difference for us 
as we apply ourselves. And again, it's controversial because the government doesn't want it, right? Businesses, conventional business, what are you talking about us doing this? There's no way. And as long as that paradigm exists, I believe that convention will prevail and status quo will prevail. And I'm traveling in packs of revolutionaries that understand the value of not irresponsible, inappropriate use, which the government loves to skyline, right? But sacred, medicinal, healing use of medicines applied toward human beings as they operate in business. And it's happening, David. And it's, there's, again, back to the Renaissance, I'm experiencing it on a daily, weekly, monthly basis and seeing people transform and become more effective in the context of, of business and the ultimate bastions of leadership because they treat psychedelics with a sacred respect and a medicinal, you know, healing essence, I think. So that's powerful. And at the end there, um, uh, you really mentioned that, that sacred respect for something. Uh, do you think that is the, the key to hone in on so that it doesn't turn into basically, oh, another drug that's abused or uh, that people start just stacking it on top of others, use it way too much, um, and they're just in it for, for a different high, maybe not just ayahuasca, but other psychedelics and, and other substances out there. Right. So it's back to the human paradigm, right? We're all human beings and yeah. we all have human natures, right? We all want more pleasure. We want less pain. That's a reptilian mindset that we all get to understand. And if I just descend to that basic instinct, I'm going to want pleasure. I'm going to want to escape, right? Hence, irresponsible use of drugs to influence states that could cause an addiction where people get addicted and then it gets all bad. Again, that's my family of origin stuff. So I've been able to unpack that. And I think the key is one of the things I've experienced is that, is that ayahuasca and, and similar forms of psychedelics are non-addictive. Matter of fact, they're counter-addictive. They help cure addictions. So mm. with so? that, well, what I, again, I'm, I'm no psychologist or scientist, but, um, so if you think about addiction, addiction oftentimes help us deal in, in uh, deal with the consequences of trauma as we try to escape. And again, I'm a human being. I, I feel that same thing we all do. I want to escape. I want more pleasure. I want less pain. And I can induce substances, whether it be alcohol or nicotine or whatever, to escape. And if I, if I can very quickly shift my countenance and realize that that's not an option, I can't escape, I must confront and, and understand that, you know, things that happen to me in life actually happened for me. It starts with that, right? So then think about trauma. Back to the military, we, we hear about post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, Right. Uh, the statistic is that 22 veterans are taking their lives every day because of PTSD, because wow. they had trauma and they didn't confront that trauma and overcome it and reprocess it. It's been proven now scientifically in clinical environments that 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 MDMA induced actually MDMA assisted psychotherapy can cure PTSD and help people confront the trauma and reframe it and make it less traumatic going forward. So it cures trauma, right? It's not necessarily easy and fun because you have to go back to that and reframe it. But again, substances like MDMA and ayahuasca um, are designed 
to help with that. And I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on the initial essence of the question around how I believe there must continue to be a sacred respect for these medicines. There's a clinical respect for them. And, you know, there's, there's, there's um, artificial, you, actually, they're, they're not natural. We call them artificial. Um, they're synthesized chemicals like ketamine, which is a tranquilizer. It's a tranquilizer right. and it tranquilizes right. animals, right? Yet they've realized that you can take substances like ketamine to transcend the default mode network of the psychology, go to terms with trauma, reframe trauma, and allow people to survive because they're not desperate anymore. And it's funny because there's there's schools of thought out there that we can use these chemicals um, as medicines to make those changes and they can be done in clinical environments. My experience, by the way, on both sides is that that sacred indigenous respect of the essence of the spirit gets to be carried through in the process, right? Like creating a, a mindset and a heart set of respect and a sacred nature of gratitude for the journey you're just, you're about to take before you induce and having a setting that's safe and people are there that love and care about you and that's a component of it is 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 love and love is is amplified in these in these scenarios while during these experiences and like i say i could share you stories about journeys and how i experienced deep levels of love that i never really understood until i actually experienced the medicine i also experienced deep levels of grief and sorrow deep that were unique to me in the medicine and that's what's helped sculpt my character and my capability going forward in context. So moral of the story, there's a time and a place for the medicinal component to be able to help cure PTSD in a clinical environment. And we also need to make sure that the, the, the sacred nature is also respected along the way. I, that's my, that's my experience with it. So powerful, powerful stuff. And um, with all this, work you've done and the journeys and going deep how is it transferred into kind of your business professional and personal life then well that's a good question because it it still is and it always will right i think that until the day i eventually pass on i'm going to be evolving and growing right and i'd right. say starting about eight years ago in in using you know, psychedelic journeys, as well as using psychedelics as a, as a, as a vitamin for the mind to optimize psychological resilience and neuroplasticity, which is a whole different discussion. It's allowed me, David, to become more actualized, to become more aware of who, what, and why I am in a way that's impossible to describe in words. <laughs> frankly. <laughs> and it's the experience of that, of that, that existential reality of me as a human. Notice I keep going like this, this, the essence, the heart, right? You know, because what you, this flesh and bone meat package is not who I am. My essence is in my heart. It's an, it's an energy, you know, it's a spirit, it's a soul, right? And for me, again, the journey continues, but it's what it's allowed me to do is take, frankly, existential responsibility for my life and who I am and why I am. And being able to tap into the recesses of new levels of competence, psychological and spiritual competence based on what the medicine has allowed me to become and apply that to my reality, to my business. 
to my planning process, to conversations that I'm having with people. Uh, it, it, even in, in, in enrollment conversations as we market and sell the business, right? Having more authentic, self-aware, holistic conversations that only I can understand based on in my experience of these medicinal experience processes that I've undertaken, right? So anyway, I'm just trying to give you a good answer. And uh, again, it's just like a soulful responsibility of the fact that I am here to make a difference and thanks to my experience with psychedelics, I think I know what that is. And now every day I get to play toward that initiative with, again, confidence, competence, rigor, passion, and enthusiasm, realizing that I'm interfacing with other people the whole time because it's all about people. It's all about communication. And if we can communicate and interface and care and love about each other most effectively, more effectively, that's going to change things. That's going to help the division. That's going to bring people together and realize that we're in this for the common good. And we have to balance that with all the different reasons why we're divided. Right. <laughs> and meet in the middle somewhere. Meet in the middle somewhere. Right. And that's what I think the medicine has allowed me to do is to realize what that really means for me and for what I believe society. So. Fascinating. And I love how we've uh, gone through self versus community versus the spiritual aspect and moving through those not as separate entities but as as one interconnected uh, part of our existence and leading to passion and performance um, this is amazing amazing stuff so if people wanted to find out more about what you've been talking about or different causes you're interested in or even working with yourself how would they do that well, I, f I fly way above the radar. <laughs> I mean, you can, I always tell people, Google my name. That's what I always say. And I believe that we all have reputations. Everybody should Google their name and find right. out what the world thinks about you, right? So <laughs> Google my name. I've also got com. Everybody should have their name. So com. check out the website. My business, as you can imagine, is a purpose-based business around organizational development and helping leaders who understand the value of stuff like this and that are oriented toward defying convention and really challenging themselves and innovating. Uh, it's called GPS Business Group, uh, gpsbusinessgroup.com. Uh, and those are my platforms. I'm also on LinkedIn, well-published on LinkedIn. I, I publish articles and I've written, I've written a couple books and the books are now out of print, but I still synthesize the lessons that I've distilled to be able to publish those books. Um, and I put them on LinkedIn. So I share there as well. So again, that's the way to connect with me, I think. And you know, I'm open to com communicating with anybody who wants to discover their possibilities in the context of, again, business. I mean, we're all in business, so we live in a world of business value exchange. And how can we do that more effectively? So I'd be willing to have any any conversation with anybody who wants to talk about that. So Nice. Definitely take Chris up on his offer and stay tuned to the next episode of The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. Take care.